Today's scripture is from Acts chapter 2, 22 to 32. Um, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and ask that you open each of our minds and hearts so that we may understand what it is you have for us in the message that Pastor Rick brings today. Amen. All right, good morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab your Bible. Let's open up to the book of Acts. Uh, We're in a series where we are working our way through the first part of this book of the Bible, and today we're picking up the action in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And just to bring everyone up to speed a little bit, we're right in the middle of what is the Apostle Peter's first ever sermon. And what we got to ask is, what's his point? There's there's a lot of points in his sermon. If you were to read all of Acts 2 together, there's a lot of points that he makes. But ultimately, there's like a main point. So uh, just that you know, and don't judge me by this, but any good and decent sermon uh, has a main point. uh, Something that you're trying to convey as a pastor, as a preacher, something, one main idea that you want people to walk away from. So we're going to ask the question this morning, what's the point? What's Peter's point? What's he pointing to? What is he pointing us at? Uh, Which is an important question for us to know here. So um, Emmett is my four-year-old son. So little four-year-old Emmett, he uh, is playing t-ball now. And first year playing organized sports, and his first sport playing organized is t-ball, which is completely an impossible sport to coach at that age, in my opinion. I've coached four- and five-year-old soccer, which is it's fun because you just, like, go to the ball, and they just go to the ball, and they kick it in a certain direction, and it's good. But there's constant motion, right? There's something for them to always be doing. Not so much with t-ball. What makes t-ball so challenging for that age group is that you're asking four and five-year-olds to stand in the field and not do anything until something happens. And most of t-ball is downtime, right? Most of the game, nothing is happening. So you're asking these kids who can't keep their attention past two seconds to stand there for 30 seconds a minute at a time until a kid like, takes a swing at a ball and actually makes contact. It's, inc- it's, it's just an impossible task. 
So what, what happens inevitably, all the kids start chasing butterflies, right? They start playing in the dirt. They start chasing each other and tackling each other and wrestling with one another. So what I do at the games is I actually go on the field with Emmett. I didn't ask to coach. I'm not coaching. I just do it, right? So I go out there because I want my kid to learn. So I go out there, and I stand right behind Emmett. I draw a circle, stand here, and I get behind them. In the entire game, the entire time they're in the field, I'm like yelling at them, look, pay attention, watch, head up, head up, ready position. So he gets in his ready position, right? But that last two seconds, look, where's the ball? Where's the ball? Where's the ball? Look at the batter. Look at the batter. The whole time, I'm like, and I'm not yelling at him. I'm not mad. I just want him to pay attention. So, and the reason why is because if he's not watching the ball, he might get hit with it, right? Or he can't make a play on the ball. So I'm always on it, constantly getting his attention. Fix your eyes where they need to be. Well, is that really much different than us adults? Not really. We're not really much different than a bunch of four or five-year-olds playing t-ball. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says this. It basically tells us exactly what it is that we're to be doing as followers of Jesus. It says, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. So, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's, here's the task. Keep your eyes on Christ and on the things of Christ. Keep your mind, your heart, everything, your soul pointed, everything bent toward him who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we're easily distracted, right? We're easily, quickly prone to distraction. So here goes our prayer life. Oh God, I love you today. I, I love you so much. I'm going to live ultimately fully and completely for your glory. And before we even finish having that thought, we're already lusting after someone and we're jealous over our friend's house and we're mad at our kids because they did something that already threw our plans for the day off. Before we even finish the prayer, we're already distracted by all sorts of kinds of stuff. Oh, Jesus, you are my awe. You are my hope. You're the center of my life. Everything I need is you. You are my everything and the very next thought in our head is, oh, man, if I just had a pay raise and I had a little bit more money in the bank and if I got the promotion or if I won the lottery, then I'd be set. You know how quickly our mind just wanders to other things and it travels to things that should not own our, our mind. So we're quick to lose focus. We, we take our eyes off the ball. In other words, we take our eyes off of Jesus. All of the time, constantly. So God is constantly doing what? Ready position, ready position. Look up, where's the ball? Batter, where's the batter? Get ready, get ready. God is constantly after us, pursuing us in such a way to get us to fix our eyes where our eyes need to be fixed on Christ himself. He's trying to point us in the right direction. So know this, everything, and I do mean this, Everything that God does in and around and through your life is to get you to fix your eyes in the right direction. Everything God has ever done, ever done, is to get the nations pointed at Christ. Everything. Looking and beholding Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Messiah, our Lord. 
Everything God does is for that. So you're going through your day. What does this mean? What does God want me to learn? Keep your eye on Jesus. I have a problem in my life. What's the deal? What am I supposed to learn from this problem? Keep your eye on Jesus. I have this wonderful blessing that God has blessed me with. Why? To keep your eye on Jesus. It's like everything that God does in our lives is that we keep our eyes pointed in the right direction. And that's really ultimately the point of Peter's sermon. He's pointing people, you got to know who Jesus is. you got to know who Jesus is and keep your eyes focused on him. So we're going to just review a little bit. Just to bring everyone up to speed. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, God pours out his spirit. He fills his people. Believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. As a result of that miracle situation in Acts 2, they can speak foreign languages spontaneously, miraculously, can speak other languages, which is just amazing. So the believers go out together as a group. They go out together into the masses, into this crowd in Jerusalem. It's Pentecost. It's a big deal holiday in Jewish life. So there's all of these Jews that aren't, don't live in Jerusalem. They aren't even from Israel. They're, they're Jews that live in other nations that grew up there, no other languages, happen to be in Jerusalem toward Pentecost. So the believers run out and start engaging these foreigners in their native language. And specifically, they're talking about the greatnesses of God, the mighty works of God. They're, they're, they're praising God in public. So they go out there, and the people are astounded. They're amazed. Like, how in the world could these uneducated Israelites possibly know how to speak my specific dialect from my language in my little corner of the world? They're amazed. And they ask an important question, which is, what does this mean? In Acts chapter 2, they ask, what does this mean? In other words, what's going on? What's happening Could someone explain to us what is going on here? So Peter stands up in the midst of the crowd, and he addresses the question. Oh, let me tell you what's going on. God's going on. God is what's going on here. God is behind everything that's happening. So hundreds of years previously, Peter quotes from from Joel, who hundreds of years earlier, the prophet, said there will be a day when God pours out his spirit, and when his spirit is poured out on his people, his people will prophesy, which is what's happening in Acts 2. They're declaring revelation and knowledge and information about God, of God, to the people. So they're prophesying. So this is of God. It can only be explained of God. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's not because of weird wine or anything like that. It's because God is doing this incredible work in the world. What's going on? God is going on. So... Last week, we looked at verses 14 through 21. And in those verses, which is when Peter starts preaching this sermon, he answers the what question. What's happening? What's going on? He answers that question specifically. Well, now we got to answer the why. Why? What's the point? Why is God doing this? So why did God pour out his spirit on his people? Why did God fill them with his spirit? Why do they now have this unique supernatural capacity to speak in other languages? Why the miracle? Why why the miracle in Acts chapter 2? And let me tell you that the answer to those questions is the same as the question of why does God do anything at all? Everything that God does, everything he did in Acts 2, everything he does today, everything he's done since the beginning, everything has been to point us to Christ. Everything that God does in and around your life, in the world, everything is to point people to who Jesus is. Everything. So with that, let's just go ahead and kind of start working our way here through 
through the story. We're picking up in Acts 2, verse 22. Peter addresses the crowd, and he says there in verse 22, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Jesus was attested to be who Jesus is by the fact that God was doing these incredible works. Okay, so Jesus was walking around and he was saying, I am the, the son of man. And he would reveal these titles about himself. And so how do we know that he's telling the truth? Because God is validating the fact that what Jesus is saying is true. That's what the word attest means. So he was attested by God. So he was validated by God. It was verified by God. To attest something means to give proof that something is true. To give evidence that what you're claiming to be true is actually true. He's attesting to it. So if someone were to ask me, is Emmett your son? I say, well, I will attest to that. I've got paperwork. I've got forms and documents, birth certificate. I've got uh, information that attests to the fact that he is my son, right? On top of that, I have pictures. I was there the day he was born and pictures that were you know, since. So I can attest that way. And guess what? I'll even take a DNA test that will attest and verify that he is, in fact, my son. How does the Father, how does God the Father then attest to the fact that Jesus is his son? Way better than a birth certificate. This is how. Are you ready? A virgin gave birth to him. A young lady who had never had relations of any kind with any man, somehow God, supernaturally, by his power, worked within her to spontaneously create a life within her. That's, that's pretty good evidence that maybe this individual is, in fact, the Son of God. And so this individual grows up and one day finds himself on a boat. He's hanging out with his disciples, hanging out. He's actually sleeping on this one particular occasion. And then a fierce storm hit, and the storm is so severe that it's, the text tells us that the winds and the waves are about to break the boat apart. The, the disciples are freaking out. They wake Jesus up. Jesus stands up. I guess he probably draws, like, like wipes the sleep off of his face, and he looks at the storm, and he literally says two words, be calm. And just like that, the wind and the waves are completely and perfectly calmed. I think my man might be the son of God. <laughs> oh, it's not over yet. There's more. There's more to the story. One day, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. Turns out there's like a, several thousand people hanging out with them. The people have nothing to eat. They're in the middle of somewhere where there's nothing to eat. The people are hungry. The disciples says the people are hungry. We got nothing to eat. What do we got? Seven loaves of bread and a few fish. Seven loaves and a few fish. Thousands of people. Jesus makes it to where seven loaves of bread and seven fish is enough for everyone. And in the text, the story tells us, and they ate and were satisfied. So it wasn't like they got a crumb. They got a lot of bread. They got a fish o lay sandwich from McDonald's. <laughs> That's really cool. They got the first ever fish sandwich. Oh, that's not, that's not all. He turns water into wine. Blind people, gives them sight. Deaf people, gives them hearing. Paralytics, they can walk. 
dude, Lazarus, dies. Comes up a cube to the Hey, Lazarus, come on out. The dude stands up out of death, resuscitates the man out of death. Who is this? It is verified, validated, attested to with many signs and miracles and wonders that this is, in fact, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the one and only. Right? It's clear. And so God, after miracle after miracle, God makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is, in fact, his son. Over and over, like, he testifies through these incredible displays of supernatural divine power. He testifies, this is the Savior. This is the Savior that you so desperately need, that every single one of you desperately need. This is who he is. This is who he is. Make no mistake. And that is the point of all of those miracles throughout Jesus' life to attest to the fact that he is Jesus, to point people to the reality of who he is. So every miracle ever done in the life of Christ and everything that takes place in our lives today, everything that God does is to point us to the reality of who Jesus is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light of the world. He's our good shepherd. He is the lamb of God who takes away our sin. You know, the, the greatest, the single greatest need that any of us have is to simply know Jesus and to engage him in faith. Not just to know academically or in your mind, but to engage Christ with your heart, to engage and wrap your faith around him, and to be arrested by Jesus, to be faith. That is our single greatest need, and everything that God does is to, to that point, to point people this is my son. This is your savior. He's the one who came. He's the Messiah. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's everything. Everything God does is to meet that greatest need, that we may experience forgiveness of sins. Everything God does is to point us to Jesus. Have I said that enough? I'm going to be saying it a lot more before we're done. Everything God does is to point you to Jesus. All right. So, God performs all of these miracles, and these miracles take place among thousands and thousands of people. It wasn't just one or two that would get to see stuff. People, many people would get to see these miracles. And here's what's sad. Most of the people who saw the miracles did not believe. Most of the people who saw these miracles performed in and through Christ did not give their lives to Jesus. They did not follow him. Right? Because it's not just a matter of believing, it's a matter of following. So most of the people didn't follow Jesus. They just wanted food. They just wanted to see something neat. They just wanted to see some like sign and wonder performed, but it never compelled them or conveyed to their heart in such a way that they gave their life to follow after Jesus. But isn't that interesting? Like why, like, why in the world would people see miracles and not believe? And here's why. Miracles cannot produce faith. Miracles cannot produce faith. I wonder how many of us have ever thought something like this. If I could just see a miracle from God, I would really believe then. Anybody? If I could just see God's miraculously healed my loved one, then my faith will really, really be strong then. Anyone? I have. On many occasions. 
If I could just see God do something, then I'll really believe. And the reality is that that, that kind of thinking is flawed. It's very flawed thinking. Let me explain to you why that's flawed. First of all, my faith should not be based on what God might do. My faith needs to be based on what God has done. My faith need not be based on what God might do. My faith need be based on what God has promised he will do. My faith need not be based upon what God might possibly do, but on the fact that he simply can if he chooses to do it. You follow? There's a difference between, well, I'll believe if he does something. It makes my faith conditional upon something that I'm imposing upon him. That's not the way it works. No, my faith is not conditional on anything other than he is who he is. He's done what he's done. He's promised what he's done. And he can do anything so he chooses. But whether or not he does so has no effect on my faith because I know who he is. That's the first reason why that kind of thinking is flawed. The second reason is that we are called to live by faith. We're not called to live by sight. So we don't need to see a miracle in order to have faith. Don't need to see it to have faith because we're called to live by faith, not by sight. The third reason would be uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing not by seeing of miracles, but faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It is the truth of God conveyed to our hearts. That is what produces faith, not the seeing of a miracle. And the fourth thing I would say, the reason why that, that, that kind of thinking is flawed is because the purpose of a miracle is not to produce faith. The purpose of a miracle is to point you to Jesus. There's a difference the, point, the purpose of a miracle is not to produce faith in you, but to point you to Jesus. Because obviously, from the first century, from those people, it is possible to see a miracle and miss the Jesus that is behind the miracle. It is possible to see something and then miss the one who is behind it. So, so the, the way I, I condense this down is that a miracle may, can, may get our attention, but only Jesus can arrest it. A miracle can get our attention, but only Jesus can arrest our faith. That arresting where we become captive to Christ, where he, uh, our affection, our adoration, our loyalty, our devotion, everything is single-mindedly and solely on Christ. It is only Jesus who can produce faith in me. It is only my heart's eyes fixed on Christ that can produce faith in me, whether or not I ever see a miracle or not. Everybody following? So today, I want everyone to know this because I don't know your situation. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your life is like or, or what this past week is like. But if you're here this morning and you are struggling in your faith, simply look to Jesus. Look to him. Wrap your heart around him. Meditate on who he is. Pray to him. Like, come humbly before him. Keep your gaze fixed upon Christ. And yeah, you know what? It's okay to pray for a miracle. There's nothing wrong with that. If you, if you need a unique help, we, I've done it. We've done it. We do it in the life of our church. There's nothing wrong with that. But folks, we don't need to see the miracle in order to have faith. Don't need to see that in order to have faith in who Christ is and what he can do. You just need to set your gaze upon him who is the author and the perfecter of our faith.
That's sufficient. Set your heart on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And if we do so, our faith will be strengthened. And we need faith, right? Don't we? I mean, can we live without faith? I mean, you can, but it's not a good life. It actually tells us in Romans chapter 5 that faith produces hope. And folks, there is nothing better on this, in, on this planet than hope. There is nothing better. There's nothing that we need more than to experience the joy that overflows from the hope that is found uniquely in the person of Christ. How in the world are you going to deal with the drama and the trauma and the stress and the distress of the junk that is our lives? Like there's constant arrows, everything, your boss, the people that report to you, your kids, your spouse, finances, neighbors, car troubles, everything, health issues, everything coming at you. How in the world can we possibly deal with any or let alone all of that if our hope is not fixed on Christ? But if it is, if our hope is in Christ, we can endure all things. We can endure all things if our hope is in Christ, but we can't have hope without the faith, and we can't have the faith without the fixing of our eyes upon Jesus. So fix your eyes on Christ. So I'm going to back up again, just to get up a little bit running head start. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, big miracle, big miracle. They can speak different languages. They run out into the crowd there, and the people are completely amazed. It gets the people's attention, right? The miracle gets their attention. And in verses 16 to 21, Peter again, he explains what is happening. God is behind it all. God God is what's happening. But here's the thing. When we pick up the, the action in verse 22, it's interesting that Peter, as quickly as possible, gets from answering the what to getting to the why. Like, what's happening almost is, is secondary to why it's happening, right? So as quickly as possible, he tries to get away from miracle talk to talking about Jesus, which is the point. The point of Peter is to point us to Jesus. The point of God's word is to point us to Jesus. The point of everything, everything God's doing is to point us to Christ. And so God wants us to be pointed and see Christ, and he wants us to know Jesus, to know him. So what does God want us to know about his son? Let's ask and answer that question. What does God want us to know about Jesus? Look at verse 23. It says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, all right, the first thing that we got to know about Jesus is that he was killed horribly and executed brutally assaulted, brutally brutally tortured, and gruesomely executed on a cross. It's amazing how easily we forget that. I would say that there are few things as important for us to remember and few things that we often forget than just how brutal Jesus' death was. Because we get distracted. Like, have issues and problems, and this is going on. I got work to do. We get distracted all day, and so we forget what it is that Jesus endured for our sake. We got stuff to do. We got school. We got classes. We got drama. All this stuff. We get distracted, and what happens is we forget the, that our salvation came at a great price. That our salvation came at a great price. 
So back in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, there at the end of that verse, it tells us that it is by his stripes, with his stripes, that we are healed. The stripes there refers to the, the whipping, the scourging that Jesus would endure. So let's, let's recount what it is that Jesus went through. Roman soldiers took Christ and they tied him to a post. And there they exposed his back and the back of his legs, tied to a post. And the Romans then took what is called a flagrum, which is a whip with multiple lashes, multiple tassels, multiple uh, uh, braids on them. And within each one of those are pieces of metal balls and pieces of sharp bone wove into each and every strap. And so with each lash, every time it would hit Christ, his back and his legs, every time those metal balls would tenderize the meat and cause contusions until the, the flesh just opens up. And with, with every whip, those pieces of bone would sink into the skin and the muscle. And so just imagine if you would whip that it sticks. So what do you have to do? You have to tug on it in order for it to release, right? And so you have to pull back each time, ripping more and more tissue, producing ribbons of bleeding flesh. And if that's not enough, as far as what Jesus went through, then they got to the fun of taking five to seven inch nails and driving them through his wrists and through his feet. And if you know much about human anatomy, you know that the hands and the feet and the wrists and the ankles are, are parts of the body that are just full of nerves, sensory nerves and bone and connective tissue and tendon and ligament and muscle and just these iron sparks just driven through it all. And then they, they hoist the cross up. They, they lift up the cross with Jesus nailed to it. And then they drop it into a hole. So just imagine the sheer waves of agony that he would experience in that moment where everything just falls into place. And on the cross, Jesus had two choices. He could either push up on the nail driven through his feet or he could sag down, putting weight on the nails through his wrists. Now the hard part. After three hours like that on the cross, then Jesus entered what are the three most horrifying hours in human history. Where for three hours, your sin and mine were placed upon him. And Jesus became our sin. He replaced us on that cross. He became Steve and Amy and Brent and Krista. Became Rico, Steve, all of us. He became all of us. He took our sin on that cross. He bore it as if he had done it. And for three hours, he was accursed by God. He was put out into out of darkness. And he paid the price for our sin all the wrath of God that is properly aimed at us for our rebellion against him was then absorbed into the one person of Jesus Christ. Because sin has to be dealt with. God would not be holy if he did not deal with sin. Punishment has to be meted. 
So this is how much God loves us. That the Father was willing to sacrifice the Son that we may be spared. This is how much Jesus loves us, that he was willing to do that for you. The whipping, the nailing on the the, the cross, the absorbing of wrath and judgment. He was willing to do that to spare you, to save you, that you may have life with him forever and ever. Everything that God does is to put you to that. Everything God does is to point you to Jesus on a cross and what he did for you. Let us remember every day that while the grace of God is free, it was not cheap. The grace of God is free to us, but it was not cheap. So think about that every day. Be arrested by that thought of what Jesus was willing to do for you, that you may have eternal life, that you may be forgiven, that you may know him. Look to Christ and let the love of God, that love so displayed on the cross, gird you up and strengthen you, propel you forward each and every day. When it gets tough, think about Jesus and what he did. When it gets difficult at home, think about Jesus and what he did. When you have that issue come up, think about what Jesus and what he did. Every moment, think about Christ. Think about Christ and let it fuel you in the right direction. The second truth that we see in verse 23 is that what happened to Jesus was no accident. It tells us in that verse that this was according to the plan of God. So just imagine that, that that God planned for this to happen. Specifically how it happened, God planned for it to happen. It was no accident. Back in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that there would be this unique individual that would come up who would crush the devil. And then you move forward a few chapters and you get to Genesis chapter 12. And there God makes a promise that someone in the line of Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. And then you fast forward in scripture a little bit and you get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it says that there would be a descendant of the line of David who would sit on an everlasting throne. And you fast forward just a little bit and you get to Isaiah 53. And you find out that this one who's going to defeat the devil who's going to sit on an everlasting throne, who's going to be a blessing to the nations, he's going to be a suffering servant, who's going to be whipped and scourged and flogged and die like a lamb. None of this was an accident. And it wasn't like God was figuring it out as he went through the Old Testament. This was planned before the foundations of the earth. And how it went by, God took no chance He made sure that everything went down according to plan. He's in complete control of everything, and especially our salvation. He did not leave any of that up to chance. He's in complete control, and he made sure that he made a way for us to be forgiven of our sin. It was premeditated by God. So the third truth that we need to see here in verse 23 is that man was culpable. Yes, God predetermined what would happen. But Peter tells the crowd, you crucified him. You killed him. Well, how can it be both, Rick? How can it be predetermined by God and his will and his plan, and they're also responsible for having done it? Yes. Like, both are true and both are right. God is sovereign, man has free will. 
They both work together. How? I don't know. Ask Brent after service. He will illuminate you on such matters. Peter goes to the crowd. And just imagine, the, and it, it's, it's not being malicious, but sometimes there's a time to be like just honest. And sometimes honesty hurts, right? He stands before this crowd. He says, you murdered the Son of God. The one attested to by God with all these miracles, the one I've been talking about with all about these miracles, the one who just did the miracle with the speaking of the tongues, all of that, that's the Son of God. You murdered him. Well, aren't you glad you weren't one of the people in that crowd? Right? Because we can't be blamed. We weren't there. I mean, that slightly predates some of us. Ah, too many jokes. I'll keep my mouth shut. (laughs) Folks, the truth is that every single one of us in this room are just as equally culpable for the crucifixion, the death, and the murder of Jesus as were those people in Jerusalem in the first century. There's an old song. Some of you know it. Were you there? When they crucified my Lord. No, I wasn't. But my sin was. My sin was there. My sin today on Sunday, May 21st, was at that cross 2,000 years ago. My sin today sent Jesus to the cross just as much as what they did back then. We are all sinners. Every one of us. We are all equally culpable and guilty before all holy God. I am no different. I am no different than the Jews who turned Jesus over to the Romans for execution. I am no different than the Romans who actually drove the spikes through his hands and his feet. I am no different, and neither are you. None of us are any different. But how funny and how interesting it is that we quickly get distracted we easily and quickly start thinking pretty high of ourselves. Start thinking better of ourselves than we really really are. Instead of measuring ourselves up against God's standard, we start comparing ourselves to other people. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. They're really bad, but I'm not as bad as them. And here's what happens. When we start thinking, thinking too highly of ourselves and thinking less of our sin, what happens is that then we neglect the most precious gift that we've ever been given. We lose sight of the most precious gift we've ever been given, which is the grace of God. The grace of God makes no sense apart from being keenly aware of our sin. The grace of God makes no sense apart from being keenly aware of how sinful we are. So I ask, do you want joy in your life? Do you desire this overwhelming sense of rejoicing in your life, this gladness, this heartfelt soul gladness in your life? If you do, embrace this truth. You are more sinful than you ever dare imagine. And you are more loved than you ever could possibly imagine. See, that's joy. When we understand just how desperately evil and wicked and sinful we are, like the more I understand that, 
And then I realized that despite all of that, God still loves me and Jesus gave his life for me and there's grace available to wash that all away. That's joy. That's joy. Like that's where joy exists in recognizing our failures and his success of triumph over our life and over our sin. So there's a fourth truth in this text that we got to get to. Let's look at verse 24. It says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Jesus goes to the cross. He bears our guilt, our shame, our iniquities. He takes it upon him. He sheds his blood as an atoning sacrifice. He dies. He dies our death. They take his body off of that cross. They wrap his body in grave cloths. They put his body into a tomb, and then they roll a stone over the entrance. Story not over. The story does not end with a stone being rolled to shut a tomb. The story continues. On the third day after that day, on that blessed Sunday morning, that stone got rolled the other way. And Jesus stood up. His eyes popped open, and he walked out of that tomb safe and sound. Jesus is alive today, and he is well. And how many of the songs that we sang earlier just repeated that theme? God is alive. The same power that rose him from the dead is alive in us. Jesus did not remain dead, Cor. The grave cannot hold him and death cannot contain him. How could it? He's the creator of everything. He's all-powerful God. He's the giver of life. The grave could not contain him. He conquered death. And in so conquering death, stay with me here, he broke the power of sin. It was through the resurrection that we are liberated from our sin. So in Christ, we are free. In Christ, we are free. Because of what Jesus did, because of him being raised from the dead, sin no longer has mastery over us. Sin no longer has dominion or power. It has no power over any of us. We are free. So imagine this. You're in jail. You're imprisoned. And one day the warden walks up to you and he says, your sentence is paid in full. And that door comes swinging open. What do you do? You get up out of there, don't you? Quickly. Would you stay in this cell? No, you would not. You would walk out of that to enjoy the life of freedom that you now have, right? But here's what too many Christians do. The jail doors open, but we stay seated inside of it. Because every time as we, or as we live our life without focusing on Jesus, who is our liberator, and we take our eyes off of him and we look to the things of the world, in essence what we're doing is that we're sitting back into the jail cell. Like, I can't live in freedom unless I keep my eyes on him, who is my liberator. Because as soon as I take my eyes off of him, I am 
following my fleshly desires, my temptations, the things of the world. So I would ask everyone here to keep your eyes on Jesus because that's, that's how we live the life that we're called to live. So a couple of months ago, this video goes viral. And it was this man who's been uh, colorblind his entire life. It's an older gentleman. He's got grandkids and everything. And so he's been colorblind his entire life. Well, they've designed new glasses that, depending on the type of colorblindness that you have, could possibly allow someone to see color. So in the video, the granddaughter gets these glasses for her granddad and brings them, brings them to And they're showing the video, and they're sitting outside, and he's like, whatever. And he just puts them on, and instantly he starts weeping. He's just overwhelmed. He's never seen blues or reds or yellows or pinks. And in that moment, he sees the world the way that it should be seen. Folks, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we don't see the world as we should see it. We actually need to keep our eyes on Christ. We need to put Jesus' glasses on. Because it's only in seeing life in and through Christ that we can then see life as it should be, as the world as we should see it. It's the only thing that corrects our eyes so that we can live with hope and with faith and with love and joy and peace. It is only in so much as we set our gaze on the things above. It is only there. So I ask, is there any area of your life in which you need victory today? Is there an area of life in which you need victory? Look to Jesus. Engage him with your faith and walk in freedom. If you're dealing with an addiction, you know, and I always throw out the same ones, right? Alcoholism, illegal drug use. These days you have to talk about opioids, painkillers, pornography. There's more addictions than those, right? There's food addictions and other kinds of vices and addictions. So if you have anything in your life that is controlling you, I can't live without it. I have to have it. It affects my mood. If there's anything like that, you can have victory because we shouldn't have an idol like that in our life. You can have victory. How? Look to Jesus. Engage your faith. Walk in freedom. How about a bad decision from your past? Yesterday or 20 years ago. And the the decision is still haunting you. This affects its ramifications. Everything, that bad decision still haunts you. Do you want that bad decision redeemed? Look to Jesus. Engage your faith. Walk in freedom. Are you stressed? Are you anxious? Are you worried? Do you want to replace anxiousness and stress and worry with joy and calm and peace? Are you tired of being tired? Are you weary of being weary? Do you want to have that replaced with the strength and the joy of the Lord? Look to Jesus. Engage your faith. Walk in freedom. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. He died on a cross to pay for your sin. He shed his blood and he died. On the third day, he rose again. And in so doing, he broke the power of sin over you. So, live by faith. Live with hope. Live immersed in the love of God. 
as displayed through his son on the cross. Each and every day, every day, all day long, keep your gaze upon Jesus. So I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward and lead us in the final song. I'm just going to ask for you to pray silently where you are. What is God asking you to do this morning? If you've never given your life to Christ and embraced his grace and repented of your sin, I ask you and I beg you for you to do that today and embark upon a new life of wonders and joys. If you are a follower of Jesus, will you recommit yourself today to keep your eyes fixed on him, to fight against that tendency to be so distracted, but instead to commit yourself every day to see him for what it is that he is and what he's done. He lovingly died for you. He mightily rose from the grave. He broke the power of sin over you. There's no need to fear or worry. There's only a call to celebrate the most wonderful gift that we've ever experienced. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you today. And we give thanks to you that you have not given up on us, that you're constantly right there beside us, behind us, in front of us, trying to get our attention. You're trying to direct our eyes toward that which is for our good. To know your Son, to walk in his ways, to... to Fix our gaze upon him in such a way, Lord, that it changes us and it helps us and it guides us and it comforts us. God, we give you praise for that cross and what took place there. A mystery too profound for us to fully understand, Lord, but I pray that you would give us a greater glimpse of it, Lord, that it would rapture our heart more, that it would capture our heart, that it would arrest us. Uh, let us not think lightly of that empty tomb where Jesus left death, death defeated there and walked out. And because of that, we know that there is a glorious hope, a blessed hope. Lord, I pray that you would guide our hearts, that we would always, always, always keep our eyes on you. In Jesus' name, amen.